Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Sometimes in life, things feel completely up to chance. Nothing more than the rolling of dice. In Esther, the fate of the Jews was left up to the dice. Will Haman's dice roll to determine their fate be outmatched by God's providence? You're listening to The Casting of the Purr by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Esther. It's a little different than what's printed in your bulletins. Same page, page 774, but I'm going to read Esther 3, verses 6 through 13. So verses 6 through 13 of Esther 3. And I'm also not going to read it until literally about halfway through my sermon. And the reason for that is I had the same problem uh, in spades this week as I had last week. You can't preach on Esther unless you know the whole story. And from my experience, some of you know the whole story of Esther, but most of you don't, not in its details. So I have to sort of tell the whole story again. And so my reading will come in the the middle of the sermon. And just to remind you uh, and to tell you if you're visiting, this is the third sermon in a series of sermons on exile texts from the Old Testament. So these are all texts that God gave to his Old Testament people when they were in a time of weakness and struggle. And we read them again and meditate on them so that we might hear God speak to us in our time of weakness and struggle. And today's text is is kind of a unique text. Esther is, is, uh, yeah, not many people read Esther. Uh, It's not very much read and it's not very much preached on. I went back through my notes and I realized 30 years, first time I've ever preached on Esther. I know, and I was feeling guilty about that until I read this week that having gone through all his works, no one can find any sermon that John Calvin preached on Esther either. <laughs> so after, after this morning, I'll be ahead of John Calvin, which is not bad. <laughs> it's also a... Um, a difficult, a different text, because it's from a different period of the exile. It's not from the Babylonians. So if you know your history, the Babylonians conquer, they bring the Jews into captivity, but then the Babylonians themselves are conquered while the Jews are in captivity by the Persians. And this takes place during the Persian part of the story. The Persians establish a great empire, which is actually bigger than the Babylonian empire. It goes all the way from modern-day Egypt to modern-day India. So it's enormous and full of wealth. And at the time of Esther, the emperor of the great empire of Persia is Xerxes. Xerxes is attested in history books of the day. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote about Xerxes. And this is what he said. He said, Xerxes was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. Ambitious, ruthless, a brilliant warrior, and a jealous lover. And what's interesting about what Herodotus says is that when you read Esther, it's exactly the same picture. The picture you get of Xerxes and Esther completely fits what Herodotus says. The book of Esther begins with a description. You're kind of immersed into the court of King Xerxes. You sort of have a sense of what it's like in his court. And the picture you get in the first couple of chapters is this place of opulence and decadence, and vanity, and pretty soon you find out ruthlessness, okay? 
a tough place for an exile to be. Chapter 1 begins by describing a party. Xerxes has decided to hold this enormous party and he's inviting all of his important nobles. And this isn't just a regular party, this is a mega party. This party, by Xerxes' decree, is going to last 180 days. That is six months straight of partying, okay? And Xerxes has made all sorts of preparations. He's got gold and silver couches all through the palace. He's decorated it in blue and in white. He's had craftsmen come in and they put down a new floor for the whole palace. Mother of pearl, marble, precious stones. When every guest arrives, they get their own personal pure goblet of gold. And then most important of all, Xerxes gives the order that the wine should never ever stop flowing. The bar is wide open. As you can imagine, under those circumstances, there's a lot of drunkenness. And Xerxes himself is prone to that. The euphemism in scripture is that um, he's in good spirits. So Xerxes and his partying crowd are in good spirits. And in the middle of one of those good spirit moments, Xerxes gives an order and says, bring me Queen Vashti, make her dress up, make her put on perfume and makeup, bring her into my throne room. I want to parade her in front of all my male nobles and show that she is the most beautiful woman in the world. He wants to treat her like a possession and show her off to his friends. Vashti is not drunk and she has some dignity left. And so she says, forget it. Xerxes flies into a drunken rage and says, you're banished. Cuts Vashti off, effectively divorces her. Vashti is no longer queen. And when he sobers up, Xerxes realizes that he needs a new queen. So he gets his servants, his eunuchs, and he sends them out into the entire kingdom and says, bring to me the most beautiful women that you find. Bring them into my court. He wants these women to parade in front of them and he's going to choose the most beautiful of the beautiful to be his queen slash trophy. But Xerxes' vanity is so great that these beautiful women, and remember the most beautiful women in the entire empire, these beautiful women may not come into Xerxes' presence as is. They must have a makeover before they can appear before him. An extreme makeover. Listen. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for him. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. A full year of beauty treatments. This is a man who valued beauty way too highly. So there you get a picture of Xerxes' court. The party the vanity gives you this sense of this place of decadence. But here's the interesting thing. If you go home and read the first two chapters of Esther, all those things will be reported, but they will be reported without any sense of criticism. When I told you this story, I editorialized, right? I made it pretty clear that this was decadent, that this was bad. But if you read Esther, you get none of that kind of commentary. It's simply reported. So if you're a person who thinks that 180 straight days of partying sounds like a pretty good thing, there's nothing really in Esther in the first two chapters to dissuade you from that opinion. 
No editorial commentary. So different than other Bible books. Other Bible books will talk about that kind of culture and they'll make it very clear that this is bad. This is not the will of God. Esther doesn't do that. And not only does Esther not do that, and maybe you know this, the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. God does not show up by name in the book of Esther. None of his names are there. There's no reference to his law. There's no reference to any of those things, which is why it makes it so hard to preach on. When I get up in front of you, when any minister gets up in front of you, I want to bring you the will of God. I want to tell you about the character of God, and more specifically, I want to point you to Jesus Christ and salvation in Jesus. How do I or any preacher do that when there's no reference to God in the book? It's a real question. Martin Luther, who was never one to hold back his opinion, said this about the book of Esther. He didn't like the book of Esther, and he said... I am so great an enemy to the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all. For it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Luther wished that Esther wasn't in the Bible. So what do we do with this book? What does it have to say to us exiles? What does it have to say to us about the our gospel of Jesus Christ when our Lord's name is not mentioned at all? Well, let's see. Let's see what happens when the exiles, the people of God, finally confront that decadent court of Xerxes. So one of the young beauties who's picked up and taken into Xerxes' present is Esther. Esther is a young Jewish girl who was raised by her uncle, whose name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is actually someone who works for the king. He's, he's worked in government. He actually one time saved the king's bacon stopped a coup from happening that would have killed the king. So he's a pretty good example of someone who's working for the welfare of the city, like we talked about with Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. That's what Mordecai's doing. He raised Esther, and Esther is gorgeous. She is beautiful. In fact, she is so beautiful that after all the people have paraded in front of Xerxes, Esther is the one chosen. So Esther, this young girl, is brought into this decadent court and she lives as the queen of this mighty emperor, but she does not reveal who she is. She does not tell them that she is a Jew, an exile, one of God's people. And that works fine for a while until Haman comes to power. Haman rises to be the second-hand man of Xerxes, and Haman is vain and proud, but he is also ruthless and conniving. Haman likes to ride through the streets of the city and he insists that as he goes by in his chariot that every single person who sees him bow down before him, revere him, prostrate themselves before him like a god. And so they all do as he goes through the city. But one day as he goes past the city gate, he notices that there's one man who does not bow down. He stays standing. And it's that Jew, Mordecai, who will not bow down before him. Haman, in his pride, is enraged. And he makes a vow that he's going to kill Mordecai. And when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, just killing Mordecai is not enough. And now finally we come to our reading. Let's start chapter 3, verse 6, to hear what, Mordecai plan what Haman plans. 
Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, Jews, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day in a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now notice what Haman describes is exactly what Jeremiah commanded two, two weeks ago, right? They're totally immersed all throughout the kingdom. They're working for it, but they are yet distinct, noticeably distinct, okay? Haman says, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. He'll steal all their stuff. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with these people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These are written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is the word of the Lord. So this is about as bad as it gets for the Jews, right? This is extermination. This is annihilation. This is Holocaust. Haman has made a plan, and he's put it in order, and he's 75% of the way to carrying it out. It's a final solution for the Jews. Now, all he has to do, now that he's got his plans laid, is choose a date. And so he decides he will choose a date by casting the poor. Casting the poor. What does that mean? It says in Scripture it's a little bit like a lot, although it's different than lots that you hear in other parts of Scripture. The poor are a couple of stones, and commentators say they're, they're most like um, these. I don't know if you can see them. Dice. The poor are like dice. You cast the dice to make choices. Now, in some of the pagan religions, they were tools of what you would call divination, okay? You cast the poor to see what your gods would choose. But seeing who Haman is and Esther, I don't think that he's choosing the will of any god. I think Haman is choosing the will of Haman. So it's just a random choice. He rolls the poor, rolls the dice to choose the day of Israel's destruction. And then he does one more thing. He erects a pole, 75 feet high, right outside his own home. And on that pole, he intends to hang the body of Mordecai. He's going to impale Mordecai on that pole. 
So people from miles around will see, this is what happens to people who don't bow down to me. So everything is in place. Xerxes has put his signet ring on it. It seems like Haman's plans are unstoppable. But that is not how the story ends. Mordecai somehow hears about Haman's plans before they're executed, and he goes to Esther and says to Esther, Esther, this is your time. You have got to save your people. You've got to go to Xerxes, the king, and get him to stop. Esther is initially reluctant to do that because, A, no one knows that she's a Jew, right? I said that. And B, you can't just walk into King Xerxes' court and make a request. In fact, the rule is that if anybody walks into Xerxes' court without being asked, they will immediately be executed unless the king takes his scepter and lowers it as a gesture of clemency. So Esther's a little bit reluctant to do what Mordecai asks, but then Mordecai makes a famous speech, and if you've heard anything from the book of Esther, it's probably this bit. He says, this is your time, Esther. Who knows but that you haven't come to be the queen for such a time as this. Right? You've heard that phrase? Who knows that you haven't been brought to this spot for such a time as this. So Esther puts on her dress. She puts on her perfume. She puts on her courage. And she walks into Xerxes' court. And as soon as she comes in, the whole place falls silent. And every male eye in the place, and they're all males, turns towards her. And hush falls over the place. And they say, what is she doing? Does she know what could happen to her? And they turn to look to see what the king will do. And a smile comes over Xerxes' face. And he lowers his scepter. And says, come forward, my queen. Come forward. It's good to see you. What would you like? Tell me what you want, and I will give it to you. And Esther says, I want a party. I want a feast, and I want you to invite all your courtiers to come to that feast that I will host. Done, says Xerxes. When the day of the banquet arrives, Esther waits a little while, waits till everyone is full of food and partly full of wine and in good spirits, and then she hatches her plan. Xerxes is really happy, turns to her and says, this is a great party, dear. I absolutely love it. I will give you anything up to half your kingdom for this great party. And she says, I want you to free my people. I am a Jew. And the order you gave was to kill my people, and it means that I will die too. And we don't deserve this. And I want you to rescind that order. Xerxes hears that, and not only is he sympathetic, he's angry. Who manipulated me to this order? Who did this? And she says, it was Haman. And Haman is terrified. Xerxes is so angry, he leaves the room. He stomps out of there. Haman is terrified, falls at Esther's feet and starts clutching at her, begging for mercy. And that's the moment where Xerxes comes back in, sees this man clutching at his wife's skirts, assume that he's accosting her, and says, that's it, and immediately orders the execution of Haman. And not only that, has him hung on the same pole he intended for Mordecai. And not only that, Xerxes gives a further order 
that everyone who was in cahoots with Haman and part of that plot should also be executed and they should be executed precisely on the day, on the very same day that Haman had chosen by the roll of the dice. It's a complete reversal. Haman is hung on the pole intended for Mordecai. On the day that God's enemies had chosen for the destruction of the Jewish people, God destroys the enemies of his people. So it's a great story, but the question still remains, where's God in it? I just said God destroys the enemies of his people. That's not how Esther puts it, right? When you read Esther, all it seems like it's a great story and has a kind of a happy ending, but everything seems to happen by human power, human plotting, human plans. That's what you see on the surface. To see beneath the surface, you have to know that this whole story gets turned into a Jewish festival. One of the favorite Jewish festivals is established at the end of the book, and it's a festival in which the story of Esther is retold every year. They still celebrate it to this day. It's usually celebrated in the month of March. Precisely, it's celebrated in the month of Adar on the very same day that Haman chose by the roll of the dice to destroy the Jewish people. And they come together, and they eat, and they drink, and they have a great time. Here's a question, and I think some of you know the answer to this question. Do you know what the name of that festival is? It's Purim, right? Purim. Here's a harder question. Do you know where that name comes from? What is the name of, what does that refer to, Purim? The dice. The poor. They call the festival the festival of the dice. Well, that's a weird name. Why would you call this the festival of the dice? Why wouldn't you call it the festival of Esther, or the festival of Mordecai, or the festival of deliverance or something? Why would you call this the festival of the dice? Such an important question if you want to see what Esther's about. It's an ironic title, of course. The people look back on their lives and they said, do you remember how frightened we were? Remember how we were absolutely terrified that this was it, that we were all going to be slaughtered and everyone we loved was going to be gone? Remember how we thought that power and randomness ruled the world? We were so wrong. God was in control the whole time. He turned everything around. Let's have a festival. Let's have a festival to celebrate God's faithfulness and let's call it the festival of chance, the festival of the dice. Not only is it an ironic title, when you think about it further, and I want you to follow me on this one, these dice end up pointing to a particular aspect of God's providence, the great reversal. So remember, Haman rolled these dice as a way to choose the date of Israel's destruction. So for Israel, these were going to be the tool of their destruction, a symbol of randomness and chaos that was going to be the tool of their destruction, but God changed that day for good. So the Israelites took this symbol of randomness and destruction and repurposed it and made it into a symbol of salvation and celebrated a festival around these things. Does that remind you of another festival and another symbol? Can you think of another symbol that's a symbol of chaos and randomness and fear that was meant to be the moment of destruction for God's people. 
that God took and turned into a moment of victory and that we now raise up and make it the middle of a feast. Can you think of another symbol like that? The cross of Christ, of course. These dice point to the cross of Jesus Christ. When the evil one had Jesus raised on a pole outside the city, he thought that the powers of evil had won and that goodness had been defeated. But God took that symbol of chaos and fear, which is what the cross is, and he turned it into a symbol of victory, the moment of complete victory for his people. And now we put that cross on the top of our steeples and we hang it on our walls and we look at that cross and we say, we were so afraid, but God was in control the whole time. There's nothing in heaven and earth that can take us out of his hands. In a way, I think the fact that God's name is never mentioned in this book is part of what Esther makes Esther so powerful, is what's so amazing about this book. Because that's how life feels sometimes, right? Especially during exile times. When you're walking through your regular days of your life, you don't see burning bushes. You don't hear voices from heaven, right? You, you don't see people walking on water. And maybe you don't hardly hear the name of God at all. I mean, if you're a minister, yeah, I hear the name of God. If you work in a Christian school, yeah, you hear the name of God. But if you're a salesperson or if you work in a secular environment, you can go weeks without anyone invoking his name or his power or his purposes or recognizing him as an agent in the middle of your days. Sometimes his name is hard to find. And then it can feel like the world is governed by chance. But do not be fooled. This world belongs to God. So this week, when you're about to walk into some courtroom, some place where you feel overwhelmed, some place where you don't know what to do, a place that feels like it's ruled by randomness, remember, the God of Esther is with you. God who raised Jesus from the dead is with you. And he's prepared you for such a time as this. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which always points to your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these, these pictures you give us, these moments where you show that you are able to deliver us from anything. And that there's nothing, not even death, that can take us from your hands. Lord, we sit under the power of those promises this morning. And then as we leave this place and go out into our week, fill us with courage and prepare us for the times ahead. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.